Father, we have quieted our hearts and sung in contemplative ways about who you are and what you have done and our desire for you, but it's easy to sing songs and mouth words. And Lord, I invite you to work in my own heart right now in the hearts of every person that are that have gathered here today because we need you. We have this culture in this world that encroaches upon us and pulls us away, and Lord, we long for you. And so I pray that you would speak by the power of your word. I pray for your spirit to work as only he can work. And I pray for your enablement now as I preach. I pray that you would grant me a favor and rapport and blessing with your people that we might track along and follow together in your holy word and grow and learn and be challenged and encouraged as only you can do Lord and so meet with us now and I just pray that you'd lose these lips and enable me to preach in a way that has passion and courage and love in favor of you and Lord we just pray this all in your name and everybody said amen Everything rises and falls on leadership, said Lee Robertson, pastor of yesteryear, founder of Tennessee Temple University, more recently popularized by John Maxwell. Everything rises and falls on leadership. It's true of businesses. It makes a big difference for a company, whether you have a good CEO or a bad CEO, whether you have a really good boss or manager or a bad boss or manager. Everything rises and falls on leadership. It's true of a family with regards to parenting or being a spouse. Leadership sets the tone and direction for that home, for that relationship. Everything rises and falls on leadership. It applies to church and ministry. Leadership at every level in a church, whether it's a paid staff position or whether it's lay leaders. It's true of a nation. Everything rises and falls on leadership. The decisions and the directions of elected officials or appointed leaders. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And it's true of teams. With a good coach or a bad coach. Or good managers or bad managers. And speaking of teams, how about them Bears? By the way, the Bears just signed three free agents this past week. All's good. Everything's going to work out just fine, just to let you know. (laughs) Larry, Moe, and Curly suited up, ready to to roll. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And good leaders make good things happen. They turn things around. Bad leaders bring bad results, and they make things actually worse. But what does good leadership look like? What does it act like? What does it sound like? And what does bad leadership look like? What does it act like? And what does bad leadership look like? sound like and and are you a good leader or are you a bad leader and you may say well I'm not a leader every one of us is a leader at some level and in some capacity whether it's at home or home or work or church or school or on a team or among friends everybody is a leader at some level and in some capacity the question is what kind of leader are you and what can you and I do to improve as leaders. Well, this morning we're going to look at one of the best books on leadership around, and it is found in your Bible, and it is the book of Nehemiah. And I invite you to turn to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to look at a couple verses in chapter 13. And over the next couple weeks, we're going to look at the tale of two leaders. We're going to see one who is very, very good, and one 
who is very, very bad. And today, we see the bad example and what we can learn from him. Nehemiah chapter 13, read along as I read verse 4 and verse 5. Nehemiah 13. Now prior to this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed by the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. He starts off in verse 4 saying, prior to this... So Nehemiah is letting us in on a little history, and he's going to let us know that good leadership always faces obstacles, and that's what he's done. He has faced physical obstacles of building a wall, and he's faced spiritual obstacles of the enemies that he had to confront, and he has faced relational obstacles with people that he had to deal with, and at times, those obstacles were other leaders, but bad leaders. So Nehemiah is going to give us a behind-the-scenes view of what has been taking place. And it wasn't all smooth sailing. Even though they had just celebrated and dedicated the walls of around Jerusalem, he wanted us to know what was happening behind the scenes. Because there were some tough times. And there were some lessons that he had to learn. And there are lessons that he is also going to teach us. A tale of two leaders. First, a very bad leader first thing we notice about bad leaders is this. They misuse their titles and their positions. Say that with me. They misuse their titles and positions. We're told in verse 4 that Eliashib the priest was appointed over the chambers of the house of God. So we have this man with a title and this man with a position. He is a priest and he's over the chambers of the house of God. He wasn't always bad. As a matter of fact, he's the very first name mentioned in helping to rebuild the wall. He was the first guy to sign on. Nehemiah 3.1 tells us, Eliashib the high priest rose with his brothers, the priests, built the sheep gate, they consecrated it, hung its doors, consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. This guy took initiative. I mean, he was a leader who led by example and proved a worthy leader, and he was worthy to watch and emulate, and he was willing to get his hands dirty for the glory of God. And he was a staunch supporter of Nehemiah and the work that Nehemiah had started in rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. This was a man with a very important position. He he was a priest. I mean, his resume looks great. References check out. Track record is clean. And he's not just a priest. We're told he's the high priest three times, assuming that it's the same Eliashib. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Eliashib the high priest. Verse 20 of chapter 3, Eliashib the high priest. Verse 28 of chapter 13, Eliashib the high priest. I mean, this is the head honcho. This is the big kahuna. This guy is the grand poobah, spiritually speaking, of the nation of Israel. He is the Billy Graham of the evangelical community, so to speak. I mean, talk about a guy that was blessed. Talk about privileged. He was in charge of the temple of Almighty God, Jerusalem, the city of the coming King of Kings, our Messiah. He alone, this guy, could go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. He's it, the only guy that could do it, the high priest. Talk about honored and respected among the people and looked up to among other leaders and trusted by the people. And talk about a responsibility. He's appointed over the chambers of the house of God. That means he's over all of the tithes that come in. And he's in charge of making sure the fellow priests and Levites and singers get what has, that they're paid. 
and supported. I mean, this is the guy overseeing the entire sacrificial system, teaching the people about God's forgiveness and cleansing. I want you to understand something. Title doesn't necessarily mean character. And don't forget it. Position doesn't necessarily mean character. This isn't the first guy in spiritual leadership who's going to mess up. And he will not be the last. I want you to understand, not everyone who starts well ends well. Not everyone who starts well ends well. Make sure you start well for God. And make sure you end well. It's been one of my prayers for many, many years is that I will be a man of God and that I will end well. Too many guys do not end well. All you got to do is look at the kings of Israel. King Saul started so well, and yet he was so arrogant and rebelled against the commands of Scripture. He ends so poorly. All you got to do is look at King Uzziah. He, he starts so well, and then he usurps the authority of the priests, and he enters into the temple, and it's, what are you doing? And he's got to be confronted by 70 or 80 priests, and then God strikes him with leprosy. Ended so poorly. King Josiah started so well. Jehoiada the priest raises him up as a man of God and he ends up killing the priest's son at the end of his life because the priest's son would confront him. It's not just in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament. There's a man named Demas. We see recorded in Colossians 4.14. Luke, the beloved physician, Paul writes, sends you his greeting, also Demas. So he's, he's the traveling companion with the apostle Paul. In Philemon 23 and 24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner, Paul writes, in Christ Jesus greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow servant serving alongside of God's choice servants in the birth of the church. And then we read in 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10. Paul writes, make every effort to come to me soon for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. And gone to Thessalonica. This man who started so well abandons God's servant Paul. This man who starts so well abandons God's work and abandons God's people. Start well and finish well. Don't abandon God's work. Don't abandon God's people. Don't abandon God's call. You may say, well, what what happened to this guy? We're we're not told. Maybe it got hard. Maybe he was tired of the persecution. Maybe it was the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life. Or maybe it was a combination of all three. But he walked away from God. And as a pastor, I have seen people do this over the 20 years of ministry I've been here. So faithful to God's house, so faithful to God's service, so faithful. Where are they? No longer in church, anywhere. They have walked away from God. Be very, very careful, child of God. Bad leaders misuse their titles and position. Bad leaders, secondly, make unholy alliances. We're told in verse 4, the end of verse 4, that he's related to Tobiah. Well, who cares? He's related to some guy who's a bad guy. I have relatives I don't like either. What's the big deal? Who's Tobiah? Tobiah is as bad as they come. I mean, this guy has a horrible track record. 
Let me just give you some of the things that are recorded in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 2.10, when Samballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, the rebuilding of the wall. Very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So he harbors resentment against God's people from day one and anybody who wants to help God's people. Nehemiah 2.19, when Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? You are rebelling against the king. So Tobiah is one who mocks Nehemiah and falsely accuses him of rebellion against King Artaxerxes in Persia. Nehemiah 4, 3 through 5. Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, looking at the wall. Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he'd break their stone wall down. Piece of junk they're building. Nehemiah cries out to God, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their heads, for they have demoralized the builders. He despises the work and he demoralizes the workers. Nehemiah 4, 7 and 8. Samballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdites heard of the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, that the breaches began to be closed. They were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance in it. He was determined to fight Nehemiah, physically fight him, and put a stop to the work on the wall. Nehemiah 6, 1 and 2, when, the, when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem, the Arab, the rest of the enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up its doors and gates. Then Sanballat, the Geshem, sent a message to me saying, come, let us meet together at Chephirim in the plain of Ono, and they were planning to harm me. So he was involved, or at least knew about a plot to assassinate Nehemiah. Nehemiah 6, 12 and 13. I perceive that surely God had not sent him. There was a man, Shemaiah, who was a prophet of God, who called on Nehemiah. He uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Samballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason that I might become frightened and act according to sin and sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could, could reproach me. So Tobiah is hiring false prophets to deceive Nehemiah and ruin his testimony among God's people. Nehemiah 6.14 and 6.19. Nehemiah cries out, Oh my God, Tobiah and Samballat, according to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who are trying to frighten me. Verse 19, Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. He's a bully! All he's trying to do is continually trying to frighten and intimidate Nehemiah. And so you have this man that the high priest is related to. His name is Tobiah. He's harbored resentment against Nehemiah and the people of God from day one. He's mocked and falsely accused Nehemiah. He's despised the work of God and demoralized the workers. He's determined to fight and put a stop to the work. He's involved or at least knows about a plot to assassinate Nehemiah. He's hired false prophets to deceive Nehemiah and ruin his testimony. And he continually tries to intimidate and frighten Nehemiah. And this is the guy, the high priest, has just opened the church doors to and said, have an office at church. This is the guy he has invited to come into the temple complex and say, make yourself at home. Poking, prodding, irritating, threatening, instigating from day one all through Nehemiah's service, all through the building process to the completion of the wall. Talk about a slap in Nehemiah's face. After all the service he has done and all, after all the sacrifices he has made on behalf of God and to God's people, this high priest 
would do this. You got a major problem when God's high priest has an alliance with the arch enemy of God's people. He's partnered with the enemy. Now, now it may have been prompted through marriage, but, which was another major no-no for the Jews to marry outside. But I want you to understand this. You don't let family stand in the way of your relationship with God. You don't let relatives stand in the way of your commitment to God. You don't let family talk you out of your obedience to God. And for some of you, you've started that, to let that happen. That, that unsaved husband or backslidden husband has started to talk you out of following God. That unsaved wife or backslidden wife and her nagging has finally gotten through to you. And your commitment to God is starting to waver. That, that parent of yours or that child of yours is starting to dissuade you and is affecting your commitment to God Almighty. I want you to understand something. Just because they're close doesn't mean you compromise. You have to make a stand for God. The words of the Lord Jesus were very clear in Matthew chapter 10. He said, do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a what? A sword. Well, what's that mean? For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of what? His own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, God says. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. God is saying, I I want you to understand something very carefully and very clearly. I'm drawing a line. And you have to decide if you're going to love me more than you love your family. He's saying, I need to be number one, not your spouse. I need to be more important than your children. He's even saying, I need to be more important than your grandchildren. Oh my goodness. Yes, because God is the one that has given you life. God is the one who died on that cross. And God is the one that has saved you from your sins. God is the one that gives you breath and strength every day. God is the one. He's saying, I've created you. I sustain you. I've saved you. You have to make a choice. And for some of you, that's what's gotten you in trouble. Because you've started to prioritize other people over your relationship with God. And he's saying it needs to stop. He's saying it needs to stop. I need to be number one. God must be your number one priority. This man was cultivating the wrong relationships is what he's doing. And we need to understand something when we cultivate the wrong relationships. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company, what does it do? Corrupts good morals. This guy is becoming corrupt because of his relationship and his closeness to this other guy. Choose your friends very, very carefully. Proverbs 29, 12 is another good leadership lesson. If a ruler pays attention to falsehood, all his ministers become wicked. A lack of integrity at the top will trickle all the way down. Bad leaders, they misuse their titles and positions. Bad leaders make unholy alliances. Thirdly, bad leaders compromise God's commands and their convictions. 
They compromise is what they do. Verse 4, he's related to Tobiah. Verse 5, he's prepared a large room for him. Where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, oil, prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contribution of the priests. He's, he's compromised God's commands. God's word was very, very clear, and he knew God's word. He was the high priest. Deuteronomy 23.3, no Ammonite. Tobiah is an Ammonite. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. He not only lets them enter the assembly, he gives them an office at the church. He gives them a suite. They would soon be reminded of this same scripture in Nehemiah 13, 1 and 2. As they celebrate on that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people, and they were found written in it, no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Clear command that he is disregarding. A clear command that he is excusing. Let me ask you a question. And only you and the Lord know. What clear commands of Scripture are you disregarding? It's, it's plain as day. What clear commands of Scripture are you excusing? Because it's hard to do, or it's uncomfortable and requires change, or, or others won't understand, and I might hurt their feelings. It doesn't matter. It's a clear command in Scripture. And God's commands are there because he loves us. And he knows what's best for us. And it's for our own protection. What clear command of Scripture maybe are we disregarding? Maybe it has to do with relationships, dating an unbeliever. And you know what 1 Corinthians 6.18 says. What are you doing? What are you doing? Maybe it's not relational, maybe it's moral. You are lying, and you have lied, and you continue to lie about it. And then you cover it up instead of coming clean. Disregarding God's clear commands. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's some kind of indulgence in your life. And you're just indulging in gluttony or indulging in drugs or indulging in something else and just indulging. You know God's clear commands. Maybe it's financial. Yeah, you're skimming off the top. You're stealing. You're cheating. Yeah, that's what you're doing. Maybe it's sexual. Maybe there's some kind of immorality or perversion that maybe no one else knows about. But God does. Maybe it's verbal. Maybe you just can't keep your mouth shut. And all you do is gossip and slander and slander and gossip and talk behind that person's face. And God is sick of it. And he's saying, just keep your mouth shut. You know what my, my word says about gossip? And slander? What, what clear command that God is saying, no more. No more. He not only disobeyed the word of God, he also disdained the house of God. He, he didn't just permit this guy in Jerusalem. Again, he gave him a room. He gave him a suite at the temple. And not just any room. Th this is where they put the grain offerings and the frankincense and the utensils and the tithes of grain and wine and oil prescribed for the Levites and singers and the gatekeepers. I mean, this was in the heart of Jerusalem at the temple complex, the spiritual nerve center of the city and the nation. 
and he invites the likes of this guy to take up residence and hang out here and set up your office. This was the place where the tithes were kept. This was the place where the utensils for the temple were stored. This was the place where the supplies were set aside for the Levites and the singers. Possibly even a room for the visiting priests and singers. And this is unheard of. This is absolutely ludicrous. This is idiocy. The room for tithes has become a room for Tobiah. He's moved the tithes out, Tobiah in, the offerings out, the enemy in. And he's placed this man above God's house. He's placed this man above God's work. He's placed this man above God's servants. Are you doing the same thing in any way? Is there a person or something that you are placing above God's house in priority? Is there a person or something you're placing above God's work, serving the Lord and ministering for him in some way with your spiritual gifts? Is there someone or something you're placing above God's people and your blessing of them? And encouraging them. I want you to understand what this guy did. He just cheapened the house of God. He just cheapened the work of God and he cheapened the people of God. That's what he did. He just cheapened it. Don't cheapen God's house. Don't cheapen God's work. Don't cheapen God's people. He completely compromised the house of God and the ministry of God. He gave him the keys to the city, an office at the church. He let the fox move right into the hen house, is what he did. And he took a holy place and used it for an unholy purpose. And he took a holy place and he gave it to an unholy person. Interesting thing happened this past Friday. Some of you read about it. The most well-known church in all of Washington, D.C. It's an Episcopal church, not known for its doctrinal standards. The Washington National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., for the very first time opens its doors to a Muslim prayer service. Here's a picture of some Muslims praying. They put out the nice carpets for him, too. The prayer service was held at noon in the northern precept of the cathedral beneath large stained glass windows etched with the names and faces of Christian saints. Several ornate carpets had been arranged on the floor where normally wooden pews faced the main altar. They were arranged so that worshipers can face in the direction of Mecca without seeing the crosses or Christian icons. Muslims are not supposed to pray in view of sacred symbols alien to their faith. Franklin Graham, son of evangelist Billy Graham, wrote this on his Facebook page. It is sad to see a church open its doors to the worship of anything other than the one true God of the Bible. Amen. And and lest you're here this morning and you think, oh, that's so harsh. I want to remind you some of the verses in the Quran. The Quran 514. Christians have forgotten part of the divine revelations they receive, so we estrange them with enmity and hatred between the one and the other to the day of judgment. And soon will Allah show them what it is they have done. Here's another one, Quran 930. Those who believe that Jesus is God's son are what? Accursed. That is you. In the eyes of Muslims. You are accursed. 
All us cursed be on them, how they are deluded from the truth. Bad leaders misuse their titles and positions. Bad leaders make unholy alliances. And bad leaders compromise God's commands and their convictions. Bad leaders also are more concerned with pleasing men than what? Than pleasing God. That'll guarantee you're a bad leader when you decide to please men instead of pleasing God. He prepared a large room for him. Formerly, they had put the offerings and the utensils and the oil and all those things and the people. Eliashib was bending over backwards to make this guy, Tobiah, comfortable. Uh, you know, just accommodating the enemy. What can I do? How can I help? Anything else? And being related to the guy is one thing. He's a bad guy. You got, you're related to him. You can't do anything about it. But completely selling out on God is another. And he sold out. And again, he's not the first religious leader to sell out. And he won't be the last. Nehemiah has dealt with other people who have sold out throughout the book. This isn't the first guy. There's a guy named Shemaiah, false prophet I mentioned earlier in Nehemiah 6.10. Nehemiah was invited over to Shemaiah's house. He entered the house of Shemaiah, and this guy said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm a lay person. I'm not supposed to go inside the temple. That's against the law of God. You're allowed in the temple. I'm not. What's going on? And let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you, and they're going to kill you at night. And I said, should a man like me flee? Could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he'd uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. You know, the only thing that saved Nehemiah's neck is that he knew the word of God, and so it protected his life for God. When you know the word of God, it will protect your life for God. The better you know the word of God, the more protected you will be. And that's why some of you make the most dumb decisions in your life that you should never make. If you only knew the word of God, if you only read the word of God, if you only spent time in the word of God, if you only every day read the word of God, put Facebook away, turn the computer off, put the newspaper away, get into the word of the living God and let it be your protection and your direction in this life. Nehemiah knew it. Shemaiah wasn't the first guy. There's another. There's a lady, Noadiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets we see in verse 14 of chapter 6. Remember, oh my God, Tobiah and Samballat, according to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. He's got people all over the place in spiritual leadership who are selling out. Where can he turn? Who can he trust? He can turn to the word of God and he can turn to his Lord. You may have people selling out all around you. You turn to God, and you turn to his word. This man refused to remain true to his calling, Eliashib. He sold out. I want to encourage you, don't sell out. Don't sell out. There's people all over the place selling out to this culture. Stand on the word of God, even if it comes to persecution. Stand on the word of Almighty God. Proverbs 25, 26 tells us about people who sell out. Like a trampled spring and a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. 
used to be a pure, refreshing source of water. Now it's a mired, nasty, disgusting thing that you can't even drink from. That is what a man or woman is who sells out to this culture and doesn't walk with God. Don't sell out. Don't become a nasty, mired, disgusting, poisonous well. Stay pure, stay refreshing, and stay true. You say, well, why did he sell out? I know he's related to the guy, but why? Maybe one reason is he's very impressed with this guy's influence. We're told twice, chapter 2, verse 10, and chapter 2, verse 19, that Tobiah was an Ammonite official. So he's a big wig among the Ammonites. And officials have clout and they have position and power and influence over others. And maybe Eliashib was a little afraid of the guy. Proverbs 29, 25 is a great truth. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. If you go around fearing people, you're going to live trapped life. You're just going to live in a snare. Afraid of your own shadow. Afraid of what you should say. Afraid of maybe I shouldn't go... Stop fearing people so much and start trusting in God. Those who trust in God and the Lord will be exalted. Eliashib fears man and he is snared for the rest of his life. Nehemiah trusts God and God just exalts him. Do you want to live trapped by people or do you want to live exalted by God? That's the question. Stop fearing people so much. Stop fearing people at work and fearing those neighbors and feeling those, fearing those relatives and what are they going to think? Who cares? And start trusting in your God, and believing in your God, and walking with your God. No Lord living in fear and being snared. Start trusting and watching God exalt. Tobiah was very well connected also in Jerusalem. Nehemiah 6.17, also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. Man, he's, he's just in cahoots with everybody. And, and, and many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son of, son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehananan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. So he's got connections all over the place. And I think maybe Eliashib was too much of a respecter of persons. Stop showing favoritism toward people. It'll get you in trouble. Stop being partial toward some and and impartial toward others. It'll get you in trouble. You know, God is no respecter of persons when it comes to salvation. Acts 10.34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Anybody can be saved. God isn't one to show partiality. When it concerns judgment, Romans 2.11, for there is no partiality with God. Nobody's getting away with anything. We should be those who don't show partiality. No matter what somebody's age, no matter what somebody's color, no matter what somebody's background, no matter if they're rich or poor or how educated they are. Roman, or James 2.1 teaches, my brethren, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism, having your favorites. If a man comes in your assembly, someone walks through that door back there, or this door over here, and they have a gold ring and fine clothes, and they pulled up in a really expensive car. There also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say, hey, 
nice to see you here today. What can we do for you? Would you like to sit up over here? Where would you like to sit? You say to the poor man, if you even pay any attention to him at all, you stand over there, you sit at my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Verse 9, if you show partiality, you are what? You're committing sin. If you show partiality to somebody because of their color, you're committing sin. You show partiality because of their wealth, you're committing sin. You show partiality because of their fame, you're committing sin. You show partiality because of their, their athleticism, uh, their smarts, their whatever. He says you're committed, committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Do not be a respecter of persons. Don't be about pleasing people, but pleasing God. Stop worrying about what people think and start being concerned about what God thinks. Galatians 1.10 For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? It's a good question. Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. You can't have it both ways. You must choose. Am I going to be a man pleaser or a God pleaser? You must make the choice. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And may God examine our hearts. We've learned about bad leaders today. What have we learned? Say it with me. Bad leaders misuse their titles and positions. They make unholy alliances. They compromise God's commands and their convictions. And they're more concerned with pleasing men than pleasing God. May we not be bad leaders. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please guard my life. Please guard all of our lives. May we end well. And may we seek to please you. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Just take a moment right now and talk to the Lord. Are there any areas of compromise in your life? Are there any clear commands that you have not been following? Confess that to God right now. Make those recommitments to him. Maybe you've been overly concerned with what people think instead of what God thinks. Talk to him about that. No more living in a snare of fear but trust in God. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. You may be here this morning and you've been a religious person to a point, come to church once in a while. But you know that you're a sinner and you know that you need forgiveness. And it's time to humble your heart before God. It's time to please him and not people. You may say, Scott, that's me. I need God in my life. 
On the outside, I put on a good front. I look like I know what I'm doing, but I'm empty inside and and I need help. I would encourage you right now to call out to God in faith. Just use words like these. Lord Jesus, I need you. Lord, I desperately need you. Please forgive me of all my sin. Please save me from all my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for loving me that much. Lord, I place my faith in you to save me. I can't save myself. Only you can save me. Please forgive me, I pray, and save me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've called out to the Lord this morning, we rejoice in that decision. And we encourage you to let others know that you've made that decision. And uh, you can talk to a good Christian friend or family member. Something else you can do is is let one of us here at the church know. Just if you open up your uh, bulletin right now, there's...